If you are interested in not just the idea of sacred sexuality, but the practice, the embodiment, the experience, the experience of it, then I have an invitation for you. When I realized that I needed more education and support and practice time to bring my consciousness and my spirituality and my communication skills and my like increased consciousness into my sexuality because of my trauma and my lack of practice and all of my like kind of bad habits and social imprinting in my sex, I hired help. And I hired a fabulous teacher uh, who now goes by Imagine. And Imagine runs an event called Firewoman. And the next one is coming up and I would love for you to join us. I now teach and support these events, which is incredible. And so I will be contributing around uh, the practice of body prayer and using our pleasure and our body as a powerful amplifier of our intentions. And Imagine is teaching, it's a four-day process and it's incredible. It's so thorough and at the same time, it's so gentle and it's... (laughs) That's my nibbling who's sleeping, who's taking a nap on my chest while I record this. Um, so now they've settled. Oh. Okay, what was I saying? Imagine has been running the Firewoman retreat for years and running the process over and over, always tweaking, always kind of uh, experimenting and and keeping things that really work, taking feedback and putting together. And this Firewoman retreat theme is spiritual transformation, sexual initiation, and power. I mean, if that's not our jam, I don't know what is. So I want to invite you to join me for the event. It's something that I participate in for my own healing and growth and contribute to, which I'm so honored and thrilled to do. And I would be so thrilled to have you gain more skill and practice and community. It's a very interactive, very, even though it's online, uh, the in-person process is also amazing. The virtual is just heart healing and it's been so transformative in this past year the past two that we've done virtually have been hugely liberating and healing and restoring and I could just go on and on one of the things that I say about Imagine's work is that it's such a relief and such a powerful thing that we have teachers to pass on this information I mean the extent that it has been um, demonized or hidden just down from anatomy to practices to whatever it is. So I would love you to join. Uh, join this incredible event, Firewoman Retreat, May 13th through the 16th, and it's uh, happening virtually, and would love to have you there. So you can check out the link below and uh, join us. Join us and connect. The difference between a singleton and twins is something like the difference between like our moon and Jupiter. Like the Jupiter, Jupiter's three hundred Earths. Oh like, my god! Jupiter, and like it's like our moon. A singleton is a moon, and twins are Jupiter. It's yeah. like so wild. It's like even with five adults in the house, twins still feel insane. Yeah. And it's like with three adults with one baby, it's like 
did laundry, made food, took na- – I got like six hours of sleep. My brother got like – you know, just like – I was like, wow, this is so different. And like three adults is like very, very helpful and necessary. I would not want them to do it with less at all. But yeah, twins was just insane. I mean, I literally got an average of like one to three hours of sleep for 16 days. Oh my gosh. Wow. I mean, like not no exaggeration. Like I'm like, those are some wild drugs. Like beside between the oxytocin and like body drugs of the twins of just being like babies and then being like, I haven't slept in 16 years. Like Oh my <laughs> gosh. Oh, so hard. I've been I've been saying the past week I've been weaning off of sleep deprivation. Yeah, totally. You have to. And I feel like for parents, that's the biggest thing. That's the thing that comes up more often than not is how can they manage to get more sleep? And it's there. There's really no answer because babies sleep patterns are so erratic. They're so all over the place. The routines don't last more than a day or two. And I feel like it's so futile trying to incorporate a routine before babies are ready because you just you just can't and then you're stressed and out and then you're stressed because it's not working and that's really yeah. easy for me because I use a, my own life I use a body-based cycle anyway like mm-hmm. I went through a um I went through a, a massive kind of initiation transformation a few years ago mm-hmm. and I basically only slept one or two sleep cycles between like two to three hours at a time wow. for my own self and I'd wake up and I would just be like okay now I'm awake and so I would like meditate or do yoga or do a thing. I would just like practice in the middle of the day. And it just was this process of really untangling my like identity associated with like sleep and needing sleep and not needing sleep and energy and in relationship to sleep. So I, that totally shifted for me years ago. So with the babies and stuff, it would just be like, oh, I'd like watch. I'd be like, okay, you don't need me right now. Mm-hmm. I'm going to disappear. And I would just like do a guided meditation or do my own meditation or give myself Reiki and pass out for like an hour. And I'd wake up or I'd wake up 20. I'd be like, I have 20 minutes. And I'd go down for like 20 minutes and I could be like, I'm back. And my brother-in-law was like, how do you do that? And I was like, only 30 years of practice. Right. <laughs> casual. It's casual. I've trained my whole being to decide what state of consciousness I'm in when I need to be. So don't blame yourself. I'm an alien. It's fine. Yeah. But that's incredible. And it probably makes things so much easier when you're in a situation with newborns oh my god newborn rhythm is like it's like makes sense to me like it's not I'm like yeah this is a thing sometimes this is what life is like and then it changes like it'll change I didn't I'm not like that I wasn't like that all the time Mm -hmm. it just was months and then it changed I'm Samantha Rise and welcome to Vagina Talks where we speak about to and from vaginas This is a show of alchemy, where we turn poison into medicine, disconnection into wisdom, and isolated wounds into communal peacemaking. Here's your host, Sophia Wiseone. You already know everything they could teach you. You already know everything they could say. We are here to remind you what you already, already, already know. I just want to take a minute to acknowledge that Vagina Talks understands that gender is fluid and dynamic and goes way beyond the binary of either woman or man, she or him, and that in fact it's a living and evolving thing that's actually personal, person to person. And that our bodies, even our understanding or the ways that we experience them can vary. It's important for me that that's something that has space here on Vagina Talks. And at the same time, I also am carrying this understanding that 
womanhood and the experience of the feminine and all of the female in the splitting of that binary has been injured, has been hurt, has been dismantled. And so I'm looking to have a space where the feminine and the female and the female body is reclaimed and respected and lifted and inspected and known as well as a space that goes beyond the binary and that acknowledges that these are limited constructs mostly put upon us and that we're in the process of evolving into something more whole and more true just wanted to say that some of my guests will use incredibly binary language for whatever reason from the places that they come from and I just wanted to let you know that Vagina Talks has a much wider understanding and it's a living one so feel free to chime in as we go along without further ado today's episode Hello, beauties, and welcome back to Vagina Talks. I am your host. They call me Sophia Wiseland. OMG. This is the first show I've been recording since my sisters gave birth. I haven't been talking about it because one of my sisters is incredibly private. And so it's an always an interesting thing. When I get really involved in her life, um, I stop talking about my personal life in my work. And it's interesting because in my New relationships, I tell people, I'm like, if you want to be close with me, I will literally broadcast our business across the internet in print, uh, video, and focal form. But I don't get that same chance disclosure with my family. And so um, with my sister's pregnancy, it became uh, quiet and inside the house time. Well, both of my sisters were pregnant. Now both of my sisters are parents. And I have had the honor and privilege of living with them through these newborn windows. Um, I had twins, nibblings that were born in January and uh, another nibbling that was born in uh, February. And we have a guest here today who I met through preparing for those for those babies. And I was just given a major compliment, which is that I sound like a new parent in the way that I feel like I'm like at 100%. But when I went to read out loud, I could barely read. And um, it's just in process, uh, taking a couple weeks to integrate and take care of my own life before diving back into auntie, auntie, um, landscape and baby tending. OMG, what a magic, magic. I don't, what is this OMG thing I'm doing? I don't know. It's like a, <laughs> let's take a trip to the 90s. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's where I am. That is just so where I am. I'm incredibly excited to bring with you an incredible resource, a, a brilliant facilitator and teacher. And I will tell you a little bit about her. And then we're just going to jump in here and take, take a journey and share share what we can. Okay, so her name is Brittany Sharp McCullum, and she's a certified childbirth educator and a certified doula and is the owner of Blossoming Bellies Holistic Birth Services based out of the greater Philadelphia area, providing childbirth education classes, birth doula services, and pelvic biomechanics training workshops for birth professionals and expectant parents since 2007. That's where we met on the internet. She is an 
She is honored to be a sought-after guest presenting on pelvic biomechanics at international childbirth-related conferences, including the International Chiropractic Pediatric Association Summit of 2018, the Evidence-Based Birth Conference in 2019, and the Midwifery Forward 2020 Conference, among many others. So obviously sought after. We got her here. Excited about that. Brittany lives in South Jersey with her partner and their three children. Brittany, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It's so, so funny much. hearing people like read a bio about your, like, it's just such an awkward thing. I keep going back thinking like, I should have worded that differently. <laughs> but it, but I appreciate you sharing all that information. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, it took me a really, bios used to be the most, like one of the most painful and annoying things about my work for a long time. And I just kept re, I mean, it just, I'm 15 years into writing it and I, something finally clicked. We're like, I like kind of, um, I care more and I care less about it. It's like a real, it's a real thing. Um, it's like, here's a snippet. Here's a snippet of, of context. Um, so uh, you and I met, we were doing an infant care class. Yeah. Um, my sister and, uh, and we did this infant care class and you were just so, I could tell every sentence that you said, you had another 45 minute talk behind every sentence and I was like that's the that's what I'm looking for here that's what I'm looking for so I'm just excited to have you here and um and the thing that you know I also looking a little bit more into your work and see you seeing the pelvic biomechanics something that obviously as a you know pelvic floor specialist chapter of my life is something that I'm really into and empowerment during birth people having a sense of uh ownership or even more so than ownership, autonomy and capability um, mm -hmm. around um, their body um, yeah. were two things that really uh, inspired me and wanted to bring you on and, and share you with my listeners. Thank you. Already there's like 20 million things that I want to say in response to all these words you're using. <laughs> pick, pick one and go, beauty. <laughs> Um, let's see. So, all right, I'll start at the beginning. You said that when we met in the infant care class, I have to say though, I have to tell, I have to tell the story too, because we were at, at an, in a virtual group <laughs> infant care class. So it's virtual. So I'm just seeing people on their screens and, you know, we're, we're talking and chatting and I didn't know you were there. <laughs> and then you had a question. So you were like, you were like, excuse me, I, I'm here listening and I have a question. And I was like, who are you? <laughs> but it was great. It was awesome because you were there to learn and absorb and just be part of that experience for your sister and her partner. And it was like, that is just so amazing. So I wish that you had shown your face sooner, <laughs> but I was so excited that you were there. And, and even more so than just being there and listening, so excited that you were thinking about the information and like, like thinking to the point where you had questions. I love when people ask questions in the classes that I teach. And when people don't ask questions, I always think like, how could they not have questions? How can there not be more things that they want to know about? Or how could this not have triggered something else? Um, you know, so I was super excited, but it was also super funny because I didn't even know you were there. <laughs> you were it like, was I really, have a question. I have a question. I was like, I have a question because they started, you know, I'm like orbiting. I'm living in their house. I'm orbiting. We're doing all things. They had this class, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll try to like, you know, catch some of it and be around. So you guys 
guys had started and I was finishing what I was doing and I came downstairs. So I'm sitting on the edge of the couch. So everyone can picture this. It's a Zoom image, right? So the Zoom image has my sister and her partner framed on the on the screen, you know? And then literally I'm like sitting there and I'm like, I'm just listening. And this question is like not going away. I'm like, this feels really important, you know? So then I was like, hi, I'm the creepy aunt. Like I'm literally the creeper in the corner that nobody knew was there. Like it was um, awkward for me too. And to like pop in on that. But uh, but you made space and reframed it. So then my face was in the picture. Uh, it was, yeah. Um, and then the, another thing you said that I love and literally could talk about for hours is autonomy and birth and how important that is, um, and how it is not tied to the way that a person chooses to give birth and should not be tied to their place of birth, but instead really comes from this sense of understanding what their rights are and how to advocate for themselves and how to communicate effectively with their providers. And I think when we restore that autonomy to the laboring person, it helps them to have this positive experience that they can look back on and feel really good about. Um, there's this kind of like idea in the birth community that people should be coming out of their births feeling like they did something really amazing rather than feeling like something happened to them. Mm. And so when we restore that autonomy, and it, again, like it doesn't matter how someone is birthing, that should be, that literally should be someone's right in all births, whether it's vaginal or cesarean with pain medication, without pain medication, when we can restore that to people, we can ease their, their journey into the postpartum. And also, you know, from like a, from a statistical standpoint, like decrease rates of postpartum depression. And, and that's really important, but it's also really important for people to feel like they've been able to kind of claim or recognize that power that they have whether it's physical or emotional or mental or a combination of the three. So I love that word autonomy when we're talking about birth. I think that's extremely important. And I think it's, it's, it's the right word to use, you know, in, in terms of like helping people to feel strong and powerful um, in the choices that they're making and feel like they've been listened to throughout that decision-making. Yeah. And I want to speak to that moment of the choices that we make in planning or anticipating and the choices that we make in a moment, mm. right? That may be different yeah. than the yeah. than the plan that we had. You know, I mean, people who plan a cesarean and then go into labor before their cesarean date, right? And so then they have to make choices or during that birth process, as well as like, you know, the reverse planning a vaginal birth or planning pain meds or no pain meds and, and making a different choice in that moment that it's not just it's not a, that autonomy doesn't happen just at one point in the journey, right? right? That it happens continuously because the best made plans are a joke. Oh, that's like, totally. like the, the mystic in me is like, ha ha, you know, yeah. um, you know, that, that notion, which isn't to say that preparedness or um, education or decisions or communication of, around visioning, all of those things, like hugely supportive of that, um, but, you know, that I, that's what I hear is not just like the decision to do it this way, but like we make decisions and then and then we have to make more decisions. And like that's the thing. Like we just make decision after decision. We make a decision and then that decision has takes us somewhere. And from that place, we have to make more decisions. And I think the continued um, experience of autonomy um, or needing support to make those decisions that that can that can maintain an auto, like you can maintain your autonomy when um, doing kind of on the fly education or collective decision making. 
yeah. right? That those are all, all of those are, are ways of, of um, holding or maintaining an autonomy that I wanted to name. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think um, childbirth is one of those um, rare opportunities in life where we are given this opportunity to practice our ability to be flexible. <laughs> and um, maybe, you know, maybe the opportunity to practice our ability to be flexible happens frequently, but childbirth is more, you know, a rare occurrence. It's something that you get to do maybe once, maybe a few times in your life, but I think it always offers this opportunity to explore our ability to adapt. Um, and I think that that kind of like what you're saying about it being more of a journey rather than like a specific point in time, I really think too that that begins early on. Like it begins, if we're talking about it specifically related to childbirth, I think it begins in pregnancy when you're giving yourself that permission to be flexible where you're like, yes, I'm going to gather knowledge and I'm going to figure out my preferences and prioritize what's important to me. And then I'm also going to give myself that permission to make different choices in the moment if I feel that I need to. And I think for a lot of people, it's it's hard to give themselves that permission to, to not do things according to their quote unquote plan. Um, but that's part of what birth teaches us. And I think that's in preparation for parenting because parenting is just one long <laughs> journey of flexibility. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's a journey for sure. It's not a point in time. I really appreciate the naming of um, the impact of postpartum, right? Because, you know, watching firsthand um, these two humans go through this massive process and all the focus, it's like the spotlight on the birth. And then it's, it's really, it reminds me in that way of like a wedding for a marriage, right? Where it's like, it's the wedding. And it's like, as though the wedding is the marriage, right? As though this like one day or three day event is the like decades of effort, work, forgiveness, vulnerability, choice, change and power, right? But it's like, you don't get to the marriage without the, without the choice, right? Like without the decision and the process and to whatever degree, you know, like ritual or shift. And it's like, you don't get to the parenting without the birth, which isn't to say that there isn't, you know, adopted parenting or okay. other parenting, that there's a moment, even if it's not a physical labor, there's a moment, there's a moment where that transitions and you become a parent. And that, that moment is full of these kind of sequential choices, decisions, autonomy, um, place, but that the judgment piece can be such a burden, the judgment of supposed to doing it one way or another, or the the permission seeking, um, or the forgiveness seeking. I think part of the things of having, you know, when it doesn't go the way that um, we wanted or we planned, or we didn't feel empowered, right? We didn't plan. We don't have that sense. It happened to me, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's that's then that becomes its own trauma recovery and birth Absolutely. in its most spectacular form. A physically brutal <laughs> journey um, to go through. So there's already so much for everybody to be recovering and integrating after um, without having it done to them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I would like to use the word physically challenging, <laughs> physically brutal. <laughs> Thank you. Only That's why you're here. That's I why you're here. I Thank don't you. need to correct. No, please correct. I, <laughs> please correct. I, <laughs> um, no, I mean, you're you're right. Challenging is not a strong enough word, but yeah. I think brutal brings up too much negative connotation. 
for me to feel comfortable using that word. Love it. But if Love you it. want to use that word, of course, obviously you yeah. can use that word. Um, yeah, I think that that kind of makes me think of something totally different, but we can go off into that tangent later. Um, but yeah, it's, I love that you compared it to the, the wedding versus the marriage because it is like that. I mean, people invest so much time and energy into this one day, kind of forgetting about everything that comes after. But the way that somebody feels about the process of that day can totally help to set the stage for a more positive start um, to that, that journey that comes after. And it's really similar with that with childbirth too. Um, yeah, so I, I like that you made that comparison. Um, also, I think, you know, there's this kind of maybe something similar that that brings to mind for me is that, again, like within the birth community, we talk a lot about how much time and effort and thought people put into things like a wedding. But then there are a lot of people that don't necessarily put that same amount of time and thought into childbirth. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's, it, it is an childbirth provides an opportunity for, again, like we said, for people to kind of claim this amazing power. And it's not about one way of giving birth. It's just part of this like growth and this identity shift that happens in childbirth. And I think, you know, I think part of what makes supporting people through that journey really important to me is that it is this opportunity for them to really be invested in this personal growth that can happen. Um, and, you know, sometimes people see it as like a means to an end, like it's a, it's a means to having the baby and that's it. But it also is really an amazing opportunity to explore more about yourself and your preferences and to claim that power and being like, this is my body and my experience and my baby. And I'm going to be as in control of that as possible. And it's birth. I mean, you can't be in control of birth, but there are lots of aspects of birth that we do have more control over than we thought. Um, And particularly things like the way that we communicate with providers and the things that we allow or don't allow to happen to our bodies um, is something that we do have control over. Um, And I'm not really sure how we got there from talking about weddings, but. (laughs) No, it's perfect. And I was going to say, can you name a couple examples of what you're talking about in terms of like the provider um, birther navigation that you're talking about like we can't control all the details but there are are things that we can control that what are you talking about yeah (laughs) what are you talking about um so i think a really great example that is probably familiar to most people who have just some at least some basic understanding of birth is the idea of internal exams so an internal exam is when a provider quote unquote, checks the cervix. They're checking for more than just what the cervix is doing, but it entails two fingers going inside the vagina and reaching back up towards the cervix. And the cervix is like this kind of um, tube-like structure at the base of the uterus. It's literally the opening to the uterus. So when a provider in labor is doing an internal exam, they're feeling the cervix to see how open or dilated it is, to see how thinned out or effaced it is, Um, They may also be trying to determine um, the position of the baby, and they're also kind of figuring out how low in the pelvis the baby is. Um, It's internal, so it is invasive. And in many hospitals, it is standard care to do an internal exam every four hours. Um, And I've been in a lot of situations with doula clients um, where I'm in, you know, in their birthing space with them, and I'm there continuously with them in labor. And a provider comes in the room and says, we're going to do an exam. That is not an opportunity for consent. (laughs) Um, And that's a situation where 
people often think they don't have the ability to say anything otherwise. They're just like, oh, okay, I guess that's what we're going to do right now. But it doesn't, it doesn't have to be. I mean, it, it's that person's body. You know, they can determine whether or not they're comfortable having an internal exam at that point. Um, so one of the things that I really stress to people, both in classes and when, at prenatal visits with doula clients, is that you always have the right to ask for more information. You always have the right to consent. You always have the right to refuse. You always have the right to say, I'm not having this right now, but I'll reconsider in an hour, or, you know, whatever, whatever time frame they're looking at. Um, but this notion that like, we're going to go by this schedule and this is how we do it. And there's not room for anything different, um, takes that power away from the person giving birth. And particularly when we're talking about somebody putting their fingers in someone else's body, I mean, there has to be a very, from an ethical standpoint, there should be a very clear and extensive conversation about why that's being suggested, suggested, what kind of information is going to be gathered from that, what that person, that provider is going to do with that information and how they're going to relay that to the person, what the alternatives are, if any, what the um, benefit and risks would be of doing that exam, and then whether or not that person is comfortable with all of the, all of the answers to those questions. Um, and unfortunately, our current childbearing you know, system is not set up to center the care really to center the care around the person whose body is going through this challenging experience. Um, and instead it's very centered around uh, schedules and kind of taking notes and um, like moving on to the next thing and managing this process with little regard for the fact that this is someone's body and they have every right to decide what does or does not happen during that process to their body. So simple. Yeah. <clears throat> so simple. Thank you. That's a great, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Right. So it's like, yeah, you have the right internal exams. And 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 the extension of that is essentially, you know, I know when we were talking to one of my sister's um, doulas, they were saying like, there's a real difference in, in their experience in the hospital. They'll come in and they'll say, we're doing this thing. And she's like, that's really different than when something is urgent and it's like a real, she's like, their eyes look different. The tone is different. Everything's different. They come in and they're like, we need to do this right now for like safety of baby, safety of mama. And that the rest of the time, what they're doing is they're running schedule, that there's running a checklist schedule. And that essentially what I'm hearing from you, it's reminding me of what I heard from this other doula is like, mm -hmm. anytime it's just a schedule mark for them, you really have the opportunity to say no, why, yeah. what. Um, even when it's urgent, you absolutely have the right to say no, you know, yeah. why, what, all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, but that it's, that there's a, that there's a, that there's going to be, there's like a difference in those, in those places, in those spaces and that kind of, whether it's an internal exam or whether it's monitoring or whether it's, you know, um, giving medication or something like that, any of those things that might be happening, um, inside a hospital birth that, that that they're on a schedule. They just do what they do on a schedule and that your ability to negotiate and communicate at every single one of those interactions is very different because the idea, especially in the hospital, I think there's that notion of like, the, the it's like that danger, the danger of birth. And it's like, yes, there's a danger zone and there's so much of birth that's just not a danger zone. Mm -hmm. It's just, there's just so much of it that's not. And, yeah. and being able to... Um, trust that even if you're in a hospital, right? To, sl to take it slow and just be like, yeah, so what happens if we wait an hour or right. three hours? And they're like, meh, mm, yeah. you know, like we'll come yeah. back around. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and yeah, I think that the tone is very different when something is emergent versus something is, you know, routine. Um, I think that the, the, the routine things, like again, to use that example of an internal exam, it's not framed as if there are other options, but there are totally other options. But that's the problem is that for the provider, it's easier to frame it as if there aren't any other options because then they can just check it off their list. Mm. Um, but that again, like- I have to pause here and just do a little like meta thing that I do a lot on the show, which is yeah. that like the micro macro of like, these are also normalized, like dominant behavioral- um, relational dynamics in the in the culture, like oh, yeah. dominant culture things of like, you know, whether it's a boss, whether it's a partner, whether it's a family member, like the normalization of like, this is what I want. So I'm going to present it like it's the only option yeah. is like a, is a very prolific um, uh, relational dynamic that we see that's been very normalized mm-hmm. um, and, and really undermines the 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 relational habit of conversation or negotiation or option exploration um and so i just want to say that that's something that 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 doesn't just happen in hospitals and it doesn't just happen in hospitals because of hospitals it happens in hospitals because that's the normalized cultural way of um having an external authority figure that decides and then presents in a way that minimizes space or inspiration for dialogue Yeah, absolutely. This is just like a microcosm of what's happening in our culture on a much larger scale. Um, I also think we have made lots of strides from a social standpoint in in not necessarily allowing that in or, you know, being more cognizant of the fact that that occurs in other aspects um, of life. And uh, for some reason, it seems that in obstetrics and in some midwifery relationships, too, that we just haven't quite made those strides. Kristen Pascucci, who runs Birth Monopoly, which is a really amazing um, uh, website, and they offer like trainings all about like knowing your rights in, in birth. Um, she says that, and I'm, I'm totally going <laughs> to butcher this, but she says something along the lines, which really sticks out, like sticks to me as being really important, is that things that we accept in the treatment we, the, the treatment that we accept in childbirth is a form of treatment that we no longer accept in other relationships. Um, but for some reason, it's like we're going back decades when when we set foot in the laboring room and we're, you know, we're ex- accepting things being spoken to in certain ways or being, you know, not told what our other options are or not communicating our priorities or preferences to providers. We're accepting that. Like you had said, you used the word normalizing. Like we're normalizing that as being the way it is in childbirth. And in very few other areas of our life would we generally speaking accept that sort of behavior without recognizing like, hey, this is happening and this probably isn't a positive thing. Like this isn't a good thing. Um, So I think that's really interesting. I also wanna point out though, um, well, two things I wanna point out that I think a lot of that consent related stuff it's not, it's not limited to hospitals. It happens in birth centers. It even happens in home births. I think when you have a relationship with your provider though, it's less likely to happen. And that's really what's so important about mm. things like home birth midwifery care, for example, you have a relationship with the provider. So when you have that intimate relationship, it's there's less likely to be that kind of issue with the provider trying to do something without truly getting consent. On the other end of the spectrum, I also want to point out that I've worked in lots of hospital settings and, you know, again, settings with midwives 
um, in home births and birth centers where that consent is completely honored. Um, I think that more often than not, especially in a hospital setting, we see it not being honored, but there are providers out there that are gems and they respect that. And they're very clear about answering questions and spending that time talking with someone. So it's not that it's, you know, there's never an all all across the board, it's not an always or never. There are some really amazing providers out there that do take that time and do really center their care around their clients. Um, And I think, you know, we just need them to be far more, you know, that that needs to be far more the norm, Um, which hopefully things are changing. Um, You know, I feel like I've been doing this work for almost 15 years and there have been some really significant changes in that time. Um, but there's always room to keep growing and progressing. Love it. I'm so glad you said that because I I really hear, I can like hear the echo of what I said. And to be really clear, what I was referring to was when for ourselves being in a hospital can activate oh, this yeah. like I'm sick, something's wrong, something like the urgency of like I have to listen to a doctor, I'm in a hospital. Like yeah. that internal framework. I completely yeah. agree. I have heard so many glorious, wonderful hospital birth stories. I have heard some shoddy birth center stories. You know, it's like, it's it's not, it is, and that piece of your saying, the provider. And again, it reminds me of like, it's not happening in a vacuum. You are who you are. If you have a hard time saying, no, stop, I need information, let's slow down um, in your life or in relations, in general, right? Or if you can do that with people that are strangers, but you have a hard time doing it with people that are closer, like those are the same, you kind of meet yourself in that. I think that's kind of what yeah. you're talking about, that personal growth part too, and all of these steps of like, you meet yourself in that way. And having a provider relationship, if you're constantly along the way, building that relationship, asking those questions, getting more information, then you're going to be building that dynamic with that provider. So that yes. in the birth moment, when something comes up, it you have that exchange of we're sharing information and I'm making a decision as the birther. Yes. Right? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Um, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. Really. No, I definitely don't want to like shade a, a birth hospital births that's not what i was that's not what i was trying to no no I, I i didn't i didn't think that you were i think sometimes in the birth community some some of the things that we talk yes. about can come can, can seem as if they're coming down on certain providers or certain you know places of birth and i think it's important that we talk honestly about what occurs in different settings and with different providers but also leave that room for those providers that are striving really hard every day to do things differently, um, even if it takes them more time and, you know, makes them like, you know, bring work home or whatever. I think that, you know, honoring those people are, is really important. Um, and then, you know, earlier you had asked me to give an example, which is when I talked about internal exams. I think it's also really like, it, well, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. There's like more I want to say, so I, I didn't finish my sentence. I think it's really important to recognize that with internal exams, I think generally the average person can see like, yeah, that could totally be invasive. Somebody's putting their fingers inside your body. But there are definitely you know, varying degrees of what people consider to be uncomfortable or um, a, for lack of a better word, like an assault on their body. And it doesn't have to be as invasive as an internal exam. It could be something like someone who goes into labor and you know they're they're at the hospital and the nurse attempts to put the continuous fetal monitor on them without consent. Like that's that's external, it's not internal. 
But the fact that someone is wrapping their arms around someone's body and like kind of poking and prodding can feel like, like that is just as traumatic for someone as maybe, you know, an internal exam is for someone else. So there are these, it, it doesn't have to be internal to feel like the power is being taken away. And a lot of it are these little tiny things that happen along the way that kind of have this cumulative effect of feeling like that power is being stripped from you. Um, there is this, this amazing group out of Boston called Resilient Birth. These two um, doulas and childbirth educators, they have backgrounds in therapy and psychotherapy. They're amazing. And they do trauma-informed care workshops. And you know, one of the things that they talked about um, at a recent workshop that I thought was really powerful was that it, again, like it doesn't have to be something that we conclusively think of as invasive. It can be something as simple as at a prenatal visit, the provider says, go pee in the cup. There's no choice being given there. There's no information. And so when we have those little tiny things happen along the way, it slowly sets the stage for feeling like you won't be powerful in birth. <laughs> um, and it just kind of, it's like, it slowly chips away at your autonomy. Um, so, you know, it would be totally appropriate for someone to say, why are you asking me to pee in this cup? What are you going to get out of this? How is this going to impact my care? What happens if the results aren't what you're expecting? Um, but there's none of that conversation happening. It's just go pee in a cup. Um, <laughs> so it can be little tiny things or it can be something as obvious as an internal exam that's being done without consent. Love it. Thank you so much. Those are very helpful, yeah. very, very helpful examples. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to hear you talk about some biomechanics pieces. <laughs> I love talking about biomechanics. <laughs> um, yeah, so I am a pelvic biomechanics educator. So I provide continuing education and advanced trainings for clinical and non-clinical birth workers based on pelvic biomechanics and movement and positioning in labor, utilizing the theories of biomechanics. So um, we can start with what biomechanics are. <laughs> well, we know what the pelvis is, generally speaking, right? The pelvis is that bony structure um, that the baby is moving through in birth. Biomechanics refers to the, the forces at play on shifting the space between those bones and the results of those forces. So basically they're kind of like the the biological laws that govern how space changes in the pelvis based on the movement of things like the femurs or the sacrum or the iliac bones or forces like gravity, you know, or the baby pressure from the baby coming down. Um, so the workshops that I do are non-clinical, meaning we're not doing anything. We're not diagnosing anything. We're not doing anything clinical, but they are educational in terms of exploring how movements affect space in the pelvis with the, with the goal of decreasing unnecessary intervention, restoring autonomy to the person giving birth in medicated and unmedicated births, um, and also helping to provide comfort in labor and better oxygenate the baby as well. So um, those are some of the great benefits of, of movement in labor, oxygenation of the baby, comfort, and then also labor progress. Um, so yeah, so biomechanics is like really important when it comes to birth, if we're thinking about decreasing intervention rates, decreasing cesarean rates, 
um, which is generally speaking a goal of you know, the, the United States in general and ACOG, which is American Congress of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Um, cesarean birth is major surgery. Absolutely, it's necessary at certain times, but we have really high cesarean rates in this country, much higher than what our um, goals are in the United States and much higher than what the World Health Organization recommends. Um, actually just about double what the World Health Organization recommends. Um, so incorporating movement into birth, whether that person has an epidural or doesn't have an epidural is a great way to help decrease intervention, including cesarean birth. Um, so yeah, so what I do is, is teach all about how movement and positioning can change available space for the baby. And then we go specifically into how certain movements, which are often instinctive movements, are actually creating space where babies need it in the pelvis. There are these three planes of the pelvis. We basically refer to them as the inlet or the top of the pelvis, the mid pelvis and the outlet or the bottom where the baby emerges. And we can shift the available space in those three different planes of the pelvis based on how we position ourselves in labor. Um, and so it's kind of like taking doula skills and doula insights and applying it to trainings for clinical providers like OBs and midwives and nurses, but then also you know, continuing to train doulas and childbirth educators and you know, any, anyone else who's supporting people in, in labor and birth. So, yeah. <laughs> I love it. It's awesome. This may seem like really random of a thing to say in response, but it reminds me of how like so many of the world's dancing is either fight training or birth training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, it's, that's not random at all, actually. Um, it's, it's totally true. And a lot of the movements that we do in certain dances, like for example, like belly dancing, um, are movements that help to wiggle the baby down and out. So it, it totally is not random. It's very connected to what we're talking about. <laughs> we're just like literally saw flamenco dancers and like belly dancers. And I was like, yeah, these are the things we're like, I'm going to protect my baby or I'm going to have my baby. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That is so true. So true. You know, one of the analogies that I love to give to people, because I think it's just super simple, is the idea of putting on a turtleneck. So if you were going to put on a turtleneck and you were holding both sides of the turtleneck yeah. and you're wiggling your head to get it through, you might eventually get the turtleneck, turtleneck on. But if at the same time you can pull down on the sides of the turtleneck as you're wiggling your head through, it's going to happen a lot faster. Yeah. And that's what we do when we're moving in labor. The baby is actively involved. The baby is wiggling their way down and out, trying to find little space changes to take advantage of. And if we're able to continue to shift that space for the baby, we can make that process happen more, uh, more easily, more efficiently. Um, unfortunately, it's not training that your average OB or midwife or nurse has. It's, it's information that really comes from um, disciplines like physiotherapy and kinesiology. Um, but when we apply that information to birth, it just makes sense, yeah. <laughs> um, especially with high intervention rates in this country. Yeah, it makes so much sense. And, yeah. and I, I'm wondering, is this the kind of thing, I imagine like a workshop is useful, but like I imagine like a weekly class where you like actually practice, I just know for my own self, like the different things of like um, – just literally any, like, I just, wow. <laughs> My brain is fried. I'm thinking about yoga and I'm uh -huh. thinking about dance and I'm thinking about body work and I'm thinking about um, how the first time I'm like getting uh, my quads 
massaged, it just feels like one mass, right? But the more I work with a body worker, the more I work with my quads, those muscles begin to feel like different muscles, right? And I can relax those muscles or engage those muscles. Or if I'm the first time I do a downward dog, I'm just a big V, right? But then after years of doing downward dog or weeks of doing downward dog, I have like my hamstrings and I have my pelvis and I have my, you know, my deep abdominal and I have my femurs and I have my spine. And there's, it's not just this outline of a V, it's this intersection of 18 different strands but that doesn't happen as like a it can happen as a transmission download and I invite anyone listening to receive a transmission download of your anatomy (laughs) and the microfascias taking up all the space of things but for the most part to embody those things like repeated practice is actually one of the in my experience has been one of the most powerful things to really get into those kind of micro movements that you're talking about like femur and sacrum are great words, but most people, unless they've really practiced with their body, have no experience of what it is to feel the femur separate from their hip or their like they're separate from their pelvis, separate from their sacrum. Yeah. So yeah, you're absolutely right. So yeah, so I teach it in a one-day workshop that is like eight hours of straight up pelvic talk, which is awesome. But the thing is, whether you sit through an eight-hour workshop or whether you're an expectant parent coming to a two-hour class if you get it in the class and then you never ever try any of it again, it's probably not gonna be that usable. Um, I, I do love, love to emphasize how all of the movements and positions that we talk about are based on completely instinctive movements that people do in birth. But the caveat, caveat though, is that the movements and positions are instinctive, but they're not necessarily what we see when we see images of birth. For example, a really great, super easy example is that when we see images of people giving birth, they're either reclined or semi-reclined in what we call the stranded beetle position where they're lying on their back with their legs hiked all the way up and out to the side. And they're usually pulling back on their legs and their face is purple and they're pushing down. And so we see that and we think that that's the norm. That is not an instinctive position for pushing, but we're so socially conditioned to think that that's what we should do that our thinking brain overpowers those primal instincts that we have. So really when we're talking about movement and positioning, because it is so instinctive, it's about creating comfort within that thinking brain so that our thinking brain's like, oh, squatting is really awesome for pushing a baby out as opposed to lying on the back or all fours is really great for pushing a baby out. But it's like, we have to get past that social conditioning. And from a provider standpoint, they're also catching most babies with people in a reclined or semi-reclined position, which means for providers, they need to move outside their comfort zone and explore other options too, which are totally doable with or without pain medication. This myth out there that if someone has an epidural, they have to give birth on their back, totally not the case. There are many different positions people can do with an epidural, the variations on sideline positions, variations on all fours positions. People can do those safely with an epidural, But when we have providers that aren't familiar with that, and when we have people that aren't familiar with that as even a concept, we wind up pushing babies out on our backs, (laughs) Um, which does not use gravity and does not open space in the pelvis. Generally speaking, there are some variations you can do recline that do open space in the pelvis, but still we're not actually utilizing gravity to help the baby come down and out. And recline positions can increase the likelihood of perineal damage and the way that we push babies out can increase the likelihood of long-term pelvic floor damage, which is your area of expertise. So, yeah, 
Okay. So here's so a much to unpack. I love it. I love it. Mm, unpack. I don't know. I just keep going. So my next thought is. Okay, um, we can do that. Well, there's something in here. So I'm wondering if you have any, um, the image that came to mind is, do you have any like videos or documentaries of births? like to be able to like imprint like I just think about like the way that like uh, watching those things like on repeat do you have any I don't know like recommended films that people could watch where they see different positions active birthing to like help rewire some of that brain stuff yeah I mean I a lot of the videos that I show in like classes and share with clients are actually YouTube videos um, that are short. They're like, you know, eight or 10 minute videos um, that I've, that I've vetted because you don't want to just randomly search on YouTube for <laughs> videos. Um, but a lot of them are just videos that I've found that really kind of show how someone is instinctively moving in birth. Okay, well, um, my request is that you reach out to those people and that you create a like rewire your brain film that is like a something that is a yeah. collection that people could just watch on repeat while they're pregnant or thinking about getting <laughs> to like replace these images. Yeah. I'm really lucky just in terms of my own Britain. Well, I mean, who knows if I'll birth a baby, but, um, uh, <laughs> conversation for another day but um <laughs> I don't think so but things change every day so um but um, I was born at home mm -hmm. um with my mom and her all fours and I have a photograph of me crowning right and so oh, yeah my association for the longest time when people would be like where were you born and I'd be like <laughs> I'd be like spruce and come back you know like in my house <laughs> and um and people would be like what and people, people would say I'm like where were you born and they'd say a hospital and I would say what happened it took mm -hmm. me so I just my association was just so and then I just and then I learned later in life that I was like oh okay like what's like common right yeah um yeah. but I think that for me to have that very like it very personalized imprint of like on all fours crowning at home yeah. like that's my like I'm like yeah sure you know but even so I still when we talk about birthing the the power and the 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 access point and you talking about how like as much as we get it what overrides our instincts um and so yeah. Yeah. So that's, so you're vetted. Yeah. That's my, that's a, that's a personal request, Brittany. I would really love it if you would get that together or like outsource. Best. Yeah. Outsource that. Um, so, cause like I you said do, vetting, right? Like there's all of these things, the, the call, yeah. the, go ahead. You want to Well, no, something. no, no. Yeah. I didn't mean to cut you off. You, you definitely don't want to just go on YouTube and search for birth videos because you have no idea what you're going to get. And also I think a lot of, there are a lot of um, videos that I would consider to be very fear-based out there. And that's not what we need as pregnant people. Again, it makes no difference how you're planning to birth your baby, whether you're choosing pain medication or not choosing it. But like, we don't need more fear surrounding childbirth. There's enough of that. So I mean, that we're socially conditioned to feel anyway. Um, one thing that I do, um, one thing that I do have, it's not, it's not a, a, a pack of videos um, from people, but I do have like a handbook on labor positions. Um, and I do have like lots of digital downloads, print edition stuff. Um, available on my website that showcases different showcases, <laughs> different, <laughs> different laboring positions. And, you know, also shows modifications that people can do to recline positions to open space in the pelvis, or again, to restore some of that autonomy. It's not that we want to say birthing on your back is bad all the time. It's just, we want to know that we have other options too. Like that can be an option, but Right. So could all fours or so could side lying. And, you know, one of the things I tell people all the time is that 
no matter what position it is, it's not going to be good if you're in it for three hours. Movement mm-hmm. frequently is really, really important. So someone could be in all fours, which, which generally speaking is a pretty good position in terms of opening the pelvis and using gravity and allowing for mobility. But if you're hanging out in all fours for three hours, then you've lost the benefits of that position because mm. it's the movement that's so important. Um, so whether somebody decides to push for a few contractions on their back and then change it up, or whether somebody decides to like push, you know, only in positions that aren't on their back, all of that can be good as long as they're remembering that movement is so important. Because again, wiggling that baby out, you know, just like the turtleneck analogy. <laughs> movement. It's such the life. It's such, it's just life, right? It's like yeah. life with life, movement and life. Yeah. Brittany, <laughs> this was great. This was great. I feel this was great. Oh I'm wondering gosh. if there's anything else that you want that's kind of like on your mind or on your heart as we listen, as you're on, yeah. on Vagina Talks, someone's listening in. Sure. Like what you might want to. Yeah, maybe I think a good thing to kind of talk about briefly or in length, whatever you prefer, um, is the language that we use surrounding birth. I think um, when we're talking about, like, again, restoring power to the person giving birth and decreasing fear, um, regardless of the choices people make, we have to be really mindful of the language that we use. So um, like, for example, um, there's this term out there, which is slowly being replaced, but this term, which is a very common reason for cesarean birth. In fact, the most common reason for cesarean birth, which is failure to progress, which is like taking the word failure and associating it with birth. That's crazy because there's never failure in birth. There's no such thing as failure in birth. But when we hear that term, we immediately, you know, kind of, again, it like it decreases our confidence or um, like, uh, like we'll, we'll, we'll often say things like that person had a successful vaginal birth successful (laughs) again like that that kind of creates sets up this dichotomy of like success versus failure um or when we're talking about vbac which is a vaginal birth after a cesarean so if someone's had a previous cesarean now they're going on to have a vaginal birth um oftentimes the term given for that quote-unquote attempt there's another word attempt at a vaginal birth is a trial of labor like (laughs) what a trial, a trial of labor. Um, so there's all these words that we associate with birth, um, you know, that that just feed, like very subconsciously feed into this fear that we have surrounding birth. And like you had mentioned earlier, thankfully, you know, the vast majority of the time birth unfolds really well and things go great. And of course there are times when intervention is necessary and absolutely there are times when cesareans are necessary. But when all we hear about is the need for intervention and the need for cesarean and all this negative language, then we start to feel like those emergencies or those red flags happen all the time, which is a very skewed perspective we have going into birth. And I love that you shared your actual own birth story, like the story of your birth, um, because I think we don't hear that, like those positive kind of like you know, I, I was born in all fours. Like, that's really awesome to hear. We don't hear that very frequently. What we do tend to hear far more often are negative or scary stories. Um, people, you know, my, my thought on it is that people need a place to heal from those experiences. And so the, quite often they share them with 
pregnant people, which are really probably not the people that you want to be sharing those scary stories with. But we do, generally speaking, need this place to go, like to to kind of share and talk about experiences that felt really scary to us. Um, But when we do that to pregnant people, then we, again, like further skew that perspective of how frequently these scary things happen. Um, So when we have that and we have this language that seems so negative, Another example, um, I had mentioned how failure to progress is being slowly phased out. They're using different terms now, but the term that they're replacing failure to progress with is labor arrest. Arrest, like (laughs) that brings up some negative connotations as well. So, you know, the way that we talk about birth, the words that we use, if we can shift them to be more empowering and more inspiring and more indicative of really what's happening as opposed to these kind of scary words that can make a really big difference just in terms of someone's confidence going into their experience. And again, like it doesn't matter how someone's giving birth, we want people to feel confident and excited about their experience and come out of it feeling really awesome rather than going into it feeling fearful and coming out of it feeling like something happened to them. Right. Well, even these are the terms. So then when they tell their birth story, these are the terms that they, Mm -hmm. these are the words that they're, when they're telling the the power of the story, the power of the story. And it reminds me of um, people. I often have this conversation with people um, when they have death, like close death. Mm -hmm. And people often will talk to people about, um, like somebody's parent dies and mm. then everyone will come up to them and talk to them about when their parent died. Mm. And, um, and I think that's indicative of our, like the dominant cultures. I don't even want to say dominant, the crumbling culture, the, <laughs> you know, this, this, this kind of status quo of, um, Un, unresolved trauma and yeah. and unaddressed grief. Yes. And so where the d- grief door is open or where the trauma door is open, that's where people um, the, out of necessity, like the if we don't meet our needs through an open door, they leak out, right? Mm-hmm. And so so that's what's happening in that space is like the 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 leak of like the need to tell the birth story, the need to address that trauma. And so when that door is open in any way, you know, even if it's not really necessarily the appropriate place, but we don't, why would people know that if we're not, we haven't been shown the appropriate place, right? Yes. There is no appropriate place. If there's no appropriate place, then literally the only doors we get are leaks, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, so the yeah. importance of just like, um, you know, if you find yourself like like a listener, if you find yourself telling your birth story to people when they are pregnant um, and it hasn't and it's not, un, you know, it's, it's an unresolved space for you. This can be an invitation for you to like get some extra care on that and, you know, and be in that space. And um and also, if you're pregnant or people start sharing their birth stories with you, this is another place for you to say, like, thank you so much for wanting to share and connect with me. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not available to hear other people's birth stories right now or um, traumatic birth stories or other people's birth stories at this moment. Like, mm-hmm. and being, and also how there's a space where a circle, a council, an intentional space to share many stories can be very different because then 
there's a way that it can transmute it. And so mm-hmm. intentional storytelling, even if it's a hard story or a happy story, like what, you know, kind of in this way oversimplified, inaccurate space, because when a trauma story is held in a deeply sacred space, it is a power story. It is a medicine story. It is a transformative mm-hmm. healing story. So it's not that like your hard birth story is a burden. It's that mm-hmm. it's really potent medicine and it needs space for it to reveal its full medicine. And Absolutely. so- It's more of an invitation to be intentional about how we share our really powerful stories so that they can get the space and the attention and support for them to, I think about like herbs brewing, how it's like Mm -hmm. certain herbs need a certain environment for certain medicines to come out. Mm -hmm. Like you don't want to overboil one certain flowers and you, you know, you don't want to dry out other ones and other ones you want to dry out before you bubble because they, they will, they will release their medicine in different ways. And so our, our stories, our trauma stories, be it grief or death or birth or the other thing is birth um, kind of in the medicine visionary landscape, it's this, it, the, the birth death door is the same door. And yeah. so that, that space opens and so it can often activate deep memories of both births, rebirths, personal journeys, as well as deaths and losses and rebirths through those transformations. And so those, those are powerful spaces. And so to be intentional about creating some of those spaces, whether it's pouring a cup of tea with a friend and saying, let's tell our stories, yeah. joining in a, in a group or a circle or intentional space, there's so many different ways to do that. But that's my invitation to you is to, is to take a deep breath and say like, okay, what's the right what's the right recipe, what's the right brew format for, for my medicine? Um, or if you're holding space for someone else, like me being in this postpartum support space that I've been in has been a lot of listening for, you know, how am I going to help um, my sister or my brother, um, you know, or these beings, um, or even these little nonverbal ba- energy beings that just went through the birth door, you know? Yeah. And holding them and being like, I know that was a big deal, like, and feeling their little body tremors and being like, I know what these mean. I study bodies. Like, I know what you're doing. You're releasing and integrating. And how do I hold space for your medicine that's unfolding um, that we get to to do that for ourselves, but we also get to do that when we're holding space for other people. And so to be curious and to, to be intentional about kind of drawing those lines around those moments so they can bloom. Yeah. Absolutely. Blossoming bellies. <laughs> hey. Wow, look how you tied that in. <laughs> that was very, very good. <laughs> Brittany McCollum, everyone. <laughs> so I have I do have I have two formal ending questions, but okay. I do want to just hand the mic back to you if there's anything else that you wanna Oh, I I, I think everything that you said is so important. And I love that you you talked about how pregnant people can draw those boundaries. Like, I appreciate you wanting to share your story, but I'm not in a position to hear it right now. I think that's really powerful. And like, again, I feel like the theme is kind of like restoring autonomy, but it is, that's a simple way to start practicing how to be autonomous, whether it's in your body or in your space or, um, you know, in, in your, your plans or in your approach with other people. I think that's really important to rather than sit and listen to a story. And even though you're trying to let it go in when you're out the other, we know that that does much easier said than done, but simply saying, I appreciate you wanting to share, but I'm not in a position to hear that right now. I think that's really powerful. And I also love that you gave kind of options for people who do have unresolved things with their births that they might want to share. Um, I think that's really important. And those spaces 
are hard to find sometimes there are there are many birth workers that do things like birth story sharing circles which can be a great place to go to just share your story and and you're also choosing to be in that space to hear other people's stories which is very different than when somebody's not choosing to hear a story and instead is in a position where they are kind of being quote unquote forced to hear a story um and i love also though that you mentioned like pouring a cup of tea with a friend and being like let's share because it doesn't have to be a formal setting. It doesn't have to be you getting you yourself and your newborn out to a group to like, you know, have this intentional moment. It can be a friend coming over and you talking about, you know, your stories together. Um, and I, yeah, I think that that's just really important. And I love that you gave options for, for both people to kind of manage the spaces that they're in. And in this time, um, and also just like in our time moving forward, like the power of what it is to pour a cup of tea and do it over Zoom, like in the <laughs> same room is ideal. And sometimes not just because of a global pandemic, but because it's people with newborns and getting out of the house is yeah. is the is Cirque du Soleil of <laughs> in Vegas so with water. You know, it's a real it's a real situation. You know, and so to yeah. not wait, you know, not need every ideal situation to be able to kind of get cre again. This is that like creative being able to say what what can I do um uh to to have permission for that love yeah. it yeah awesome let's see if there's something else that I want to say I feel like my brain started to go but I think that's it um no I think that's it um, <laughs> great well, you've shared some beautiful resources with us today and uh, encourage you to go ahead and check out the show notes and uh, we'll put links in for a bunch of those resources that you put out there. We'll obviously put your information, um, Brittany, on in the show notes for people to reach out. Is there a particular way that you like people to get in touch with you, a particular platform or a format that you yeah. like Sure. Um, if people have like, like if they want to have a conversation, like specifically want to like reach out and, you know, chat about something, sending me an email is always a good way to do that. Um, there's a contact form on my website that they can use, or they can just find my email on the website and go that way, that way. Um, if they're kind of just looking for more like resources on pelvic dynamics or autonomy and birth or your people's rights or things like that, um, social media is a good place to find me there. Um, Instagram and Facebook. Um, I'm on both of those. Facebook's usually where I post things like articles and research and things like that. Um, whereas Instagram is, you know, obviously more like pictures or videos and then like some, you know, descriptions. But it's things that it's definitely, you know, I try really hard to post resources that people can use in preparing for their births or healing from their births or building confidence for their births. Um, so stuff like stuff like that's on on social media. But then if somebody wanted to actually reach out, which I totally welcome, you know, if you have questions or need some resources or, you know, want to set up a chat time or something like that, they can totally email me. Great. Perfect. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I have one more question for you. Okay. I want to say this here right now. This is not the question for you, which is just um, if you're listening, if you know someone who is either getting ready to give birth or is a practitioner, a lot of from one practitioner or another, there's a lot of talk that Brittany I did in here that would actually be really useful for people who are support people, um, not just people who, and maybe in some cases even more so, um, but then also people who are birthers or, or connected or, or in those places. If you have any of those people that are in any of those positions and you think this conversation would be useful or supportive for them um, or that uh, Brittany or I may be useful or supportive to them as a resource, please forward them um, this conversation, this episode, and let people um, who could find this useful help them find it. Um, so 
Okay, Brittany, my closing question for all my Vagina Talk episodes are, Mm -hmm. I believe that we are in a time of birthing, embodying, bringing into being another reality, another culture, another way of being that we're in this um, cultural shift time. And the the question is an assumption, which means sometimes I have to, my pre-question, which is like, is that, are you with me on that? If I said no, would the question change? No, I'm just kidding. I, yeah, right. I, I was just literally it. just thinking that. I was like, what would I do if someone said no? I don't know. I'd figure it out. Figure no, it I out. totally I, – I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So my question is, you know, this notion of uh, uh, like it can be useful, right? This image, right? This image of, of where are we going can help us, um, motivate us, can help guide us, can help signal to us. Even if when we get there, it looks a little different than we visioned. The vision itself can be so directive. And so paint us a picture, tell us a piece, show us what is the piece that you know about where we're going? Like on the other side, what does it look like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? Yeah. Um, going? so I'll, I will say that in relation to birth, I guess. Um, cause it's kind of like, what my life revolves around. (laughs) Um, So I think that the vision that we can all kind of keep in mind as a, as a, an optimal place to be gravitating towards is this space where in the birthing room, the person who's giving birth is at the, the, the top of the pyramid of, of power and everyone else is kind of looking up at them. Um, at this point, I think the, the pyramid of power is kind of upside down with the birthing person at the bottom. Um, and I think like we've been talking about, there are shifts that are happening. There are changes that are happening. And sometimes it's two steps forward and one step back. Um, but there's a lot of support and a lot of resources out there to keep moving things forward. And I think if we're going to just kind of talk about it in relation to birth, um, I my, my goal in everything that I do kind of n- instinctively, I guess, has this vision of the birthing person at the center or at the top and everyone else recognizing that and changing the way that they provide care in response to where that person is, rather than saying, we're going to do this. Instead, we're giving the options to the person who's at the top of the pyramid and they're deciding where we go from there. Um, And I think, you know, I'm talking about it in relation to birth, but I think it's so much bigger than that. Um, From an individual standpoint, it's about centering ourselves and our needs um, and being okay with doing that, which is hard, I think, for a lot of people. Um, And it's about finding the strength to use our voices and to set our boundaries and to be clear with people um, and to demand better from the people that say they care about us. I think, you know, it's kind of more like, I think most things with birth can be like life lessons or life goals. Um, So I'm thinking about it in birth, but I'm also thinking that it's really relevant to kind of just how we carry ourselves in in this world and in this space and in our relationships too. Hmm. So beautiful. The image that I see is this is a, is a circle, right? It's like, I'm so circle-y, so, so consistently in this, like, this, like, council space, right? Like, that you get all this support and it's like you're in the center and that, Mm -hmm you know, the being at the center of your own, like being the authority in that circumstance, yes. right? And so this, the collective, the council is there to support and cultivate the truest, the, you know, optimal, the truest, uh, I don't know, yeah, moment in that, but that you're the, 
It's like the literally the birthplace. You're the canal. You're the access point for this particular moment. And that, you know, we're always the center of our own universe. That's just what we are. Um, and that we have the opportunity to shift our focus and be in support of each person mm-hmm. at the center of their, their own journey. So I love and that. The word you used, I really like cultivate. I often use the word nourish, but I think cultivate is similar, but different. And I, I really like that, like surrounding yourself with people that cultivate who you are, I think is really important and allow for growth. And, you know, um, I think giving yourself that permission to grow and to change and to set your boundaries and allow yourself to be cultivated. <laughs> I think that that may, might be too passive of a, there's got to be a better way to say that, but yeah. Well, I think, I think it's a power. I think it's a real, I think it's a skill. I think the, I think receptivity is a very active, very active position and that, mm-hmm. um, yeah. And so to be cultivated, I think that there's a deep, there's a deep liveliness in that. I have a, that, yeah, I have a strong, a strong, active, positive response to that. Mm-hmm. Not as a singular way of being cultivated or to mm-hmm. cultivate, right? But as an, like, as one, one aspect or one face of it. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so, so, so very much. Thank you. <laughs> this thank has you. been so much fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really great. I'm so glad. Thank you so much for joining us. Sweet darlings, I hope you got something. I hope you got some things and, um, you know, just the resources. There's so much there. I feel like we cracked a bunch of kind of edges. And if you need like more guidance or a direction, don't hesitate. I just can feel it. Brittany wants you to reach out. I'd be happy to reach out and just point you towards the the resources to really, to really, if this stirred your pot and said, I need more, let us know. We can do our best. And uh, if you don't know what you need, you just are open to it. May it come to you with great synchronicity and ease. (sighs) May you uh, tend your new growth. We are in a massive, massive time of change as always, this great age of awakening that we are in. And so be gentle with yourself as you grow and change. Uh, Learn what you need. Learn how to be cultivated. Learn how to cultivate yourself and uh, drink lots of water. As my mother would say, drink water, fear nothing. Take care. Be well. Lots of love. Talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much. And thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sophia. (laughs) Remember, everything that we talked about in today's episodes will be in the show notes. So go there for links. For more content that you're going to love, subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to this podcast. Share this episode with anybody you think you'll enjoy it. And share the love with a rate or review wherever you listen. And to find out about all the mad adventures I'm up to, check me out on Instagram at SophiaWiseOne uh, or come to my website, SophiaWiseOne.com. I am Sophia Wise One, daughter of the wind. I am calling you to rise up, rise up, rise up, rise up and take your place. Thank you, gorgeous. I am thrilled and grateful for your support listening to this podcast. I want to invite you to come check out the Patreon. If you think this podcast is the bee's knees and you're grateful that it exists, I want you to know I'm grateful that you exist. Come join the Patreon. I call it the temple. We are healing. We are musicking. We are podcasting. We are together. Come check it out. You can find it through Patreon. 
backslash Sophia Wise One or through my website, sophiawiseone.com. Y'all know you need to hear that, though. You know. If you don't know, now you know. If you don't know. Okay. Y'all, I'm so excited about Vagina Talks right now. Don't pretend like you don't know this is the best podcast you've ever listened to. Don't pretend like you don't know. You know.